Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Take out your uh, Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and we will be reading from verses 18 through 23, and uh, as just by way of a reminder, if you do have a mobile device with you like we all do, if you wouldn't mind, make sure that we have that turned down. Um, I know that sometimes I forget and make an example out of myself, but... Um, but with that, let us come before the Lord and let's pray for the reading and the preaching of His Word. What a privilege it is, Lord, to be here, to be able to come here and worship You and in spirit and in truth, to be able to join together with Your people, each one that You have called, each one who have heard Your voice, each one who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, all of us, Lord, all of us, Lord, living for you. All of us in community coming together for one purpose, to glorify you. And because of that, you have made us your children and brothers and sisters, Lord. And I am grateful, Lord, that we can be family and celebrate you together today. I pray, Lord God, that now that we are here and that we have gathered and we have lifted our voices in song to you, that, Lord, that you would use your word to pierce our hearts to open our eyes and our minds to the truth and that you would use it to transform us, that we may become sharp instruments in your hand to go out into the world and to share the hope of Christ with all that we come in contact with. And I pray, Father, that this message would be heard in the spirit, Lord God, that you intended and that you would be glorified in what we do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor Eric Alexander once wrote, the real horror of being outside of Christ is that there is no shelter from the wrath of God. <clears throat> And I want to be transparent with you this morning. As, we, as I welcome you back to this uh, series um, titled The Power of the Gospel, which is a walk through the book of Romans, 
I have to really kind of be upfront with you. I had planned to preach this series. And even when, as I began to preach this series, this first message, I had a rough outline and a schedule for how I wanted to get through this, this letter. As I mentioned before, this sermon series is about five years in the making. Um, and I had a handle on what I wanted to preach on, on just about every section of the text, because I've been through this book perhaps a hundred times or more. And I, and I know this, and I know the overarching outline of Romans just as about as well as I know anything else as far as the subject of the Bible. In fact, I could probably, you know, have somebody give me a text from Romans. If you'd give me 20 minutes, I can read an outline and I can preach a sermon on it. I mean, it is not because I'm a great preacher. It's just because I, I've been in this text for so long that I just know it like the back of my hand. And so as we began this series, I had an idea of how the schedule was to go. Uh, and, and every text, I know the points I want to make. But the problem is, is I begin to preach and prepare to preach this text. I begin to be confronted with additional issues in the text and, and things that are just really important. Additional theological themes that I just missed the first hundred times I read through it. Additional details that were just simply too big and too important to ignore. And so I became faced with a difficult decision. The first option was that I could just simply continue on schedule and just push forward, ignoring the things that I have been you know, seeing in the text and hoping that maybe at some point in the future I could come back uh, in another series and, and touch on those things. Or even perhaps maybe even the thought occurred to me that I could just do a bunch of supplemental videos during the week and then just broadcast them out for you guys who were interested that you could pick that stuff up as well. Uh, I mean, and that's great, but that's a lot of extra work. And, you know, uh, and, and if you're like me, you get inundated with all kinds of notifications from, you know, from social media and videos all the time anyway. Then number two, I could just basically cram all the details into the sermon plan uh, in addition to what I was already covering, which would result in either, number one, me talking way too fast, which is already a problem, right? Or it could result in me going way too long, which is already a problem. <laughs> or even worse, I could just skim over the details and then give it a shallow treatment and, you know, really just kind of like do surface level. The third option was to basically slow down, take my time, examine the additional issues and the themes that, that God lays on my heart to preach through, which means I can still preach all the messages that I wanted to preach that I planned to, but I have some additional messages to preach in between those things. It would just take, take us a little longer to get through Romans, and, and I might have to preach on the, the same text a, a few weeks in a row. And those were my options. And after some reflection and prayer, and considering how much I love the Word of God and how much I love you, and considering the fact that I stand on the truth that, that the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it is the power of God to transform lives, I have opted for the last option, which is to slow down, take our time, walk through the important things that God has for us in each text. And in addition to that, I'm grateful to God that you, He has given me a church family who loves me enough to put up with me, right? but also who is hungry for the Word of God and loves the Word of God. I praise the Lord for that, that I see that in you, that desire to go deeper, not just to touch on the shallow things, but to really know the Word of God. And I believe because of that, we will all profit in our time together in Romans, um, even if it takes us a little longer. 
And so here we are back at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. And if you remember, this text is rooted in Paul's statement that he is not ashamed of the gospel. This is a a topic that we're going to hear a lot about as we go along through the book of Romans. He is not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, Paul says that he's indebted to all kinds of people. And in light of that, he looks forward to proclaiming the gospel to the Christians in Rome. And then immediately he makes this perplexing statement that he's not ashamed of the gospel, which again seems strange to us. Because why does he say that he's not ashamed of the gospel? Why not just say, I'm proud of the the gospel. I love the gospel. I'm excited to proclaim the gospel. Why does he make a point to say that I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, the reason, as we discovered, is because there was, and there still is today, great temptation in the world around us to be ashamed of the gospel. There has been and still continues to be pressure on Christians to deny the gospel. Now, in the first century, the government, there was governmental and religious pressure to be afraid to share the gospel because people actually died because of sharing the gospel. Today, it's a little bit more subtle. We have mostly cultural pressure that causes people to be timid about the gospel. It comes from our families. It comes from our communities. It comes from institutions like our schools. And the media, and even even the government itself is getting the business of making the gospel proclamation uncomfortable. There's lots of pressure on Christians to deny the gospel. And the reason for that is the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is offensive to those who are dying. The gospel doesn't make any sense to them. Their minds cannot comprehend it. That is why they label it as bigoted, narrow-minded, hateful, exclusive. Some even say today now are pushing for the label of dangerous. If you're a Christian who believes what the Bible says, they're they're starting to say that you might be, you know, a domestic terrorist, right? And the reason for that, the reason why they push back is because the gospel confronts them in their sin. And even more, people don't like the prospect that their loved ones and themselves aren't going to get a free pass into heaven simply for being what they consider to be good people. That just doesn't register with them. They can't imagine. And so there are a lot of, there's a lot of temptation to be ashamed and embarrassed of the gospel. And, and because the world labels it foolishness, and because the world pushes back and says the gospel is offensive, many Christians who find themselves saying that they love God, find their resolve to stand up for the gospel as presented in the Word of God weakened. They they find their strength to be bold, to proclaim the truth, failing. And we see it all the time around us. People who have made an emotional profession of faith and say they love Jesus, but but find in themselves the the boldness to proclaim the, the truth of God fleeting because when push comes to shove, they are simply, I don't know how else to say it, they're simply ashamed of the message of the gospel. And like I mentioned last time, these people don't say that they're ashamed. They won't say it out loud that way. They'll say, I love the Lord. I love the Bible. I love the gospel. I even go to church. But they are embarrassed. They're ashamed of the message of the gospel because they struggle with the truth that the gospel is offensive. They don't want to be seen as someone who might offend someone else. They don't want to be seen as intolerant or bigoted. And at the root, they want Christ, but they also want to be accepted by the world too. 
And when your desire is to be liked by the world, and when that supersedes your willingness to look foolish for the gospel, you just might be ashamed of the gospel. And that's what we talked about last time. Paul, after explaining that he is not ashamed of the gospel, and after declaring that the gospel is the power of God to save, he then begins to explain what the gospel is. And as we talked about, that's going to take him about three chapters to get through that. But remember, he doesn't begin his explanation of the gospel with the love of God, like so many who want to be accepted by the world do. He begins with the offensive truth of the gospel, which is the bad news. The bad news of the gospel, the bad news of of who we are in light of who God is, the bad news that helps us to understand that we need the good news. And in this section, in verse 18 through 23, Paul reveals three foundational truths that are offensive to the world and to many people who call themselves Christian. Three inescapable truths about the bad news of the human condition. By the way, that's what Paul's talking about in the first three chapters, is the human condition. And he gives us, in this section, three truths that are inescapable. Number one is the truth of the wrath of God. The fact that God's wrath and anger burns against sin. And one day will be, we'll be poured out in judgment on that sin. That's what we talked about. A deeply offensive truth for those who are perishing, and even many people who identify themselves as Christians. Number two is the truth that we will see moving forward, is the folly of unbelief. The fact that there is no such thing as a real atheist. Every atheist I know will push back on that statement, but the Bible makes it really clear there's no such thing. It's particularly offensive to those who deny God, by the way, when you talk to them. But Paul makes it clear in this text that God has revealed himself to all of mankind and they are without excuse. And we will explore that later. And the number three is the truth that we were all, every one of us, created to worship something. It's our nature to worship something. That is the troublesome truth that some people who who fancy themselves as anti-religious, As intellectuals, they will insist they don't worship anything. They're they're not superstitious. But yet, when you get down to it, they worship philosophy. They will worship science. They will worship their favorite sports team. They will worship their work and even the people around them because we all will worship invariably something. Why? Because we were created that way. It's in our nature. These are the three foundational truths of the that the world finds offensive that Paul touches on in this section, truths that Paul helps us to see. And the last time together, we began to talk about the first one, which is the wrath of God. And and we talked about the fact that the wrath of God against sin is a reality. It's not just something that we've made up. It is real. And it's the fact that the wrath of God is the basis of the bad news that makes the good news of the gospel necessary. In fact, the gospel doesn't make any sense without the wrath of God. It doesn't. Jesus dying for your sins so you guys can just be be friends doesn't make any sense. Jesus' death on the cross doesn't make sense without without the wrath of God. His incarnation doesn't make any sense. Christianity itself doesn't make any sense. If there is no wrath of God, there is no good news. And we spent an entire sermon series unpacking that. Well, with that, I'd... Again, I'd hoped this week that I'd be moving on to the folly of unbelief to talk about the fact that there's no such thing as an atheist. I've already got the outline ready to go. 
But as you may remember, last time I had to shorten the message up to keep from going too long then. In fact, I look back on YouTube and the message itself is 57 minutes and 44 seconds. Just under an hour, praise the Lord. Um, but had I not cut out some of the material, it would have been much longer, and which reminds me of actually one of my favorite preachers. His name is Jeff Durbin. He's a senior elder and pastor at the Apologia Church in Arizona, and he leads um, uh, a, uh, a podcast um, called Apologia and also cultish. They deal with cults and stuff. But he's also a leading voice in the, uh, uh, in the pro-life movement. And he's a brilliant expositor of the text. By the way, he's also a, uh, a world champion martial arts expert and once played, uh, I think, Donatello in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Guy's got one of the most incredible testimonies ever. But he's a brilliant expositor of the text, but he is known for going really, really long. In fact, uh, recently he did a message that was 90, 90 minutes long. And I was like, nope, <laughs> I am not, I'm not going to do that, all right? Uh, you guys are gracious to me, and you listen to you listen attentively. So I'm not going to push it. Not to mention the restrooms are way over there in a different building, and some of you have had too much coffee to sit here that long anyway. So, and so I cut the message short last time, and because of that, this week instead of moving on, we're gonna we're gonna finish up where we kind of left off on the subject of uh, the wrath of God, um, because there is still more that we need to see. So Paul says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Not only is God's wrath a reality, and not only is God's wrath the foundation of the bad news that, that helps us to see our need for the good news, Paul communicates in this text a great deal about the wrath of God in this text. Paul begins his gospel presentation with the offensive truth about the wrath of God, but notice what he says. The wrath of God is present tense, is revealed from heaven. He doesn't say it will be revealed as, as it does say in other scriptures. He's saying that it is currently revealed. And even more specifically, the verb that he uses here in this text is present tense but with an ongoing sense, which means that the wrath of God is not revealed, just revealed. It is, it is being revealed, continually being revealed right now. In other words, the wrath of God is being revealed right now in this moment from heaven. Paul is saying that God's wrath and judgment against sin is right now currently being revealed. The Greek word Paul uses here uh, for revealed is apokalupto, which if you're listening, you can kind of hear a similar word. Apocalypse is the word that we use, right? And the word that he uses here is to uncover something that was hidden, to reveal something that, that was out of sight. It means literally to make something known or something plain obvious. And so Paul is saying that, that God's wrath, his hatred against sin, his anger against unrighteousness is currently being made manifest and clear right now. Not only will he pour out his wrath in the future as we will see, or as we've seen in Revelation and other scriptures, but right now in, in that moment in the first century, and even now in this moment in the 21st century, God's wrath and hatred of sin is visible in the world 
now. That's what he's saying. That's where he begins his gospel. God's wrath and hatred of sin is manifested and evident from heaven now. Not just will be manifested in the future. And this is something we need to stop and think about. Because how many times do we just read past this and not stop and ponder the tense of the verb here? I know for me, I just kind of read through it. But we need to slow down and ask, what does this mean? That God's wrath is being, not just will be revealed, but it's being revealed. What, what, is, what does Paul mean by this? Now, let me give you a big picture. Paul will connect all the dots for us as we go through Romans chapter 1. And we're going to see more of this in depth as it comes together in the weeks to come when he explains how God has given sinful men up to their lusts. That's the overarching thing. And let me just give you a preview of that so that we have a context to move forward. Beginning in verse 18, Paul says, and I want you to hear the language here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they knew God, they did not honor him as God but gave or, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. That's the phrase you need to pay attention to as we go along here. Part of the wrath of God, part of his judgment against sin is the fact that God has given them over to their sin that they want. He has given them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served a creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, look at this again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see, it, see fit to acknowledge God, God, again, was that? Gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. The visible evidence for God's wrath and judgment being revealed from heaven right now is the truth that God has given them up. This right here, brothers and sisters, is a sobering truth. This is a truth that ought to make your heart ache. This is a truth that ought to make you hold your breath. This is a, a truth that make, ought to make you grieve for the people in the world who think that they're traveling along just fine. This is a truth that should cause you to think about 
who you are and where you are in your walk with Christ, this should cause you to think long and hard about those that you love. The evidence of God's wrath is not that He has sent them to hell. Yet, the evidence of God's wrath is that He has not scourged them with pestilence and disease. Yet, the evidence of God's wrath is He has not stripped them of their wealth and their relationships and their joy. Yet, those are the things that come. The evidence of His wrath upon them now is He has let them go. He has given them up. He has given up to their lust and their own desires. He has given them to what they wanted. He has allowed them to go their own way. God is allowing them to fall deeper into the pit of their sin. God is allowing them to sell themselves further into bondage by their own free will. Do you want to talk about free will? That's where it leads you. And where does that lead being sold further into bondage? To a greater and deeper embrace of depravity. A greater and deeper embrace of depravity. A fiercer hunger for filthiness and excess. A deeper desire for covetousness. A greater appreciation for more lewdness and vileness and decadence. Does that even remind you of anything? Just look around us at the culture, every one of us, if we were to go back 15 years and were to step off today, we would go, what in the world has happened? What is the mark of sexual sin today? Not discretion. It's excess. It is the in-your-face nastiness. It's something we see all the time. And it's pervasive and it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's on TV. It's on every social media platform. It's, it's in the movies. It's even at school. It is everywhere. Part of God's judgment against sin is the truth that he gives those who love their sin, those who refuse to repent of their sin, those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel. Part of that judgment is to give them what they want so that it masters them. It consumes their lives and even becomes their identity. Because we hear it all the time, right? Well, it's, it's, it's just who I am. That's just how I'm wired up. I, I was born this way. Does any of that sound familiar? And this is being revealed right now in our culture today. Just like it was being revealed in Rome in the first century. God is giving people over to their sin. His wrath is evident in this world. But here's the thing. Not only is God's wrath evident in the world, it is evident in the life of your neighbors. It's in the, in the life of your friends and your family members. It's in the lives of who we love. Let's just get to the bottom line. This is why people find the wrath of God so offensive. It's because, it, because it's not strangers. It's not just the strangers out there who love their sin. It's not just the people out there, right, who commit acts of unspeakable depravity. It's the people you know. It's the people we love. 
It may be your best friend. It may be your coworkers who just are good people in your eyes, are always nice to you, and they're always there for you. It may even be your parents. It may be even your kids or even your grandkids. Let's just bottom line and get to the the root of this. Nobody wants to hear that truth. Nobody wants to hear that truth. Nobody wants to hear the truth that God's wrath is being revealed on your grandkids. Come on. Nobody wants to hear the truth that God's wrath abides on your children because of the heinous nature of their sin. And you don't think that children can engage in egregious sin? Just start checking internet histories and find out. Check what happens on their Snapchat or their messages to their friends. Listen closely to the things that kids talk about today. We all want to think the best of our children. All of us do. Why? Because we love them. Our children are part of who we are. We can't even imagine the world without them. We can't even imagine our lives without our children. They're extensions of us in some way. They're echoes of us. And so we have so many hopes for them, and even even more so for our beloved little grandkids. Who could be more innocent in our eyes than them? And so we don't want to hear the truth about God's wrath being revealed against them. We don't want to hear it. In fact, it's it's been made known to me that there are those who won't even come to church here. People that I know and love, but they won't come to church because I preach what the Bible says about sexual sin. They don't come to church here because I preach about what the Bible says about the nature of sexual sin, all of it. And you know why? Because lay like so many people, like so many people we know, have loved ones that are engaged in and covered up in sexual sin. They have people that they're related to. They have people that they care about, people that they know who love their sexual sin, and they find it within themselves impossible to reconcile in their minds and hearts that their loved one, the one that they have watched grown up since they were a little kid, that person who's always so sweet and so thoughtful and so funny, that person that they love so much is right now at odds and in rebellion to a holy, righteous God, and His wrath is being revealed from heaven against them, and it worse, one day will suffer under the full weight and the torment of that wrath. That is why. That's why they're offended by the gospel. Rather than telling them the truth and calling them to repent and believe the gospel, they simply just become ashamed of the gospel and deny the truth and refuse to even talk about it, refuse to even address it because they don't want to acknowledge the truth that their loved one is under the condemnation and the judgment of a holy, righteous, and just God. But hear me. This is the truth we have to take home here, is that what is worse is, is, if, is they, without knowing it, become the instrument that God uses to give them over to their sin. Let me say it again, because we need to hear it. Those who deny the truth of God's wrath against their their sin 
without knowing it, become the instrument that God is using to give their loved ones over to their sin. They become the instruments that encourage their sin. They become the instruments that drive them further away from God and deeper into depravity. They become the instrument that leads further to their demise. Why? Because they refuse to call sin what it is. And they become party to their loved one's ultimate doom and destruction. Because they're, on some level, ashamed of the gospel message. They're afraid to be rejected. They are afraid and terrified of hurting people's feelings and and offending someone. They value their loved one's approval over their loved one's eternity. And the net result is they escort them right all the way up to the edge of the abyss themselves, patting on on the hand saying, you're okay. Thinking that they're being loving not seeing that their loved one's deeper embrace of their sin is evidence of God's wrath and that it's real and it's being made manifest in their lives because God is giving them up over to it. This is the visible sign of God's wrath being revealed in the lives of the individual. And this should make us shudder. It should, it should terrify us. And, and that should cause us to repent of our timidness to tell people of the truth, especially those that we love. It should cause us to repent of our unwillingness to say, I love you, and there's nothing I would ever do to want to hurt your feelings, but I have to, I have to, because I love you, tell you something that you need to hear. Now, you might reject it, and that's fine. I'm still going to love you, but you got to hear me. you got to hear me. Another visible sign of God's wrath that we're seeing is God's judgment upon groups of people, particularly upon nations, as he gives them over to their sin as well. Which, by the way, is what we're seeing today. The problem that we face in America is that we think that what's wrong with our country boils down to either the left versus the right. We think that it's an issue of Democrat or Republican or liberal versus conservative or political ideas, but all those things are just false truths. Those are symptoms, not the root of the problem. What's wrong with our nation at its root is not our political divide. It is the truth that we right now are under the judgment and the wrath of God as a country. It's undeniable. And the division that we see right now in our country is not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. You see, God judges nations, and he has from the very beginning. He pours out his wrath on them. And when he does so, he gives them what? Corrupt leadership. He right now is judging the United States of America for horrific sin, which would explain where we are. It's the explanation of why up is down and down is up and right is wrong and wrong is right. That's why the government will threaten you with imprisonment for a fake vaccine ID, but refuse to prosecute drug crimes and even theft. That's why a dad can get arrested at a school board meeting for standing up for his daughter who was raped in a bathroom by a boy in a dress. But whole cities can burn down and people can be targeted and beaten nearly to death and people still go free. We as a nation are under the wrath of God. We're under his judgment for a national sin. And you might think to yourself, wait a minute, national sin? 
What do you mean by that? The U.S. has been a beacon of hope and freedom around the world. The U.S. has brought so much good to the world. What do you mean sin? And you're correct. The United States was a beacon and symbol of hope and freedom in the past. But now the United States is a symbol of infanticide as we have murdered over 70 million babies since 1972. And today we send out missionaries all over the world spreading the planned parenthood um, gospel, encouraging developing nations to embrace the sacrament of abortion and, you know, in the name of, of preventing overpopulation. And before you say, well, that's a liberal thing, what you need to realize is that Roe versus Wade, the decision was written by a court where the majority of the appointees were appointed by Republican presidents. Right? And the conservative court after conservative court throughout the decades has upheld Roe versus Wade. Not to mention there are just as many conservatives today who are, there are, there are lots of conservatives today who are pro-choice. There are a lot of people who even call themselves Christians who say that they're pro-choice, which means, guess what? We're all covered up in it. And if that were not enough, we're under the judgment of God for sanctioning and promoting and celebrating every form of deviancy known to man. I mean, that is... Our, our, our sin around the world. What is the flag that we've been encouraging people to fly in their embassies, even in, in is, Islamic countries, but the pride flag? We promote every deviancy, homosexuality, bisexuality, adultery, infidelity, promiscuity, fornication, pedophilia, and pornography, and all of those things are just simply considered today as lifestyles. Not a choice. And you're labeled to be hateful if you call it sin. And again, before we say this is a liberal thing, there are just as many conservatives who cheat on their spouses, right? There are just as many conservatives who look at pornography and have premarital sex, right? And, and, and a growing number of people who call themselves by the name of Christ are openly affirming all sorts of sexual immorality and previously known to be conservative churches. Not to mention Justice Kennedy, a judge appointed by a Republican president, authored the Obergefell decision that essentially legalized same-sex marriage. So this is not just a one-party thing. And the reason why I point this out is not because there's no difference between the left and the right. There is difference, a vast difference in many, in many ways. And so my point is not to say that there's no difference, but rather to help you to see what the real problem is. The real problem in our country is that we've been given over to its lust and appetites because God is judging our nation, and that is why our country is falling apart. And the solution is not going to be who gets elected in the next election. The solution is not going to be in the swing of the pendulum from Democrat to Republican and then back and forth and back and forth as it has over the last 200 years, but rather the solution is national repentance. The solution is going to be national revival. And that means us not being ashamed of the gospel, but understanding that it's the power of God for salvation and calling everyone we come in contact to repent and believe the gospel. That we call for and we pray for confession and a turning away of our national sin and that we preach and we call people to embrace the gospel of Christ only then can crisis like this be averted long-term? 
And it begins with Christians getting on their faces before a holy and just God praying for mercy, praying for grace, praying for revival, praying that God intervene in a supernatural way and asking for forgiveness for our ashamedness of the gospel. And then going out into the world around us and proclaiming the only message of hope there is, the only message of hope there is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the funny thing is, is many of us are willing to argue online about all kinds of things, especially about our deeply held political opinions. Remember the last election, right? People have right now heated arguments all the time about masks and vaccines and social distancing and whether or not the government is out to get us or not. Right? But somehow, some way, we can have those strong opinions and even go to blows with our friends. I mean, actually, like, tick each other off to where we're not even following each other anymore, not even talking anymore, whole families dividing themselves up over this. But we don't do this with the gospel. We are ashamed to share the gospel. Now, I say that. Why do I say we're ashamed of it? Because many of us aren't sharing it at all. So many of us adopt this attitude, well, that's just not my problem. Live and let live, as I say. So many find the risk of, risk of offending people and making people upset you know, by the truth. That that's just too risky. We need to shake that stupor off. And believe me, this is not a message where I'm like pointing fingers. I'm saying we, we as a church, we as Christians across this nation need to become bold and rise up as a church and storm the gates of hell because God's wrath is in this moment being revealed from heaven on our nation and on those that we love. Which, by the way, itself ought to tell us something really, really important. If God's wrath is visible right now, even though He is still being gracious and He is withholding the full weight of His judgment until Christ returns in victory. If God's wrath is being visible, even though He is still kind to believers and unbelievers alike, remember, He makes the sun to shine and the rain on both. If His wrath is visible, even though He's still giving us all good gifts like love and friendship and the warmth of the sun and the taste of food, if under these circumstances where we can still see His kindness, His wrath is being revealed, how much worse will the full weight of His wrath be when His kindness from sinners is gone? And He finally pours out His judgment when He consummates His plan for history. It is more it is worse than we can possibly imagine. We live in a comfortable world. We don't think about these things. But what we need to realize is the pain that we experience in this life, the loneliness that we go through, the, the hopelessness that touches our lives at times, the depression, the anxiety, the violence, the hatred that we feel, the bitterness of injustice, all of these things are consequences of sin, but they also point to a very real something that is bigger. And that is the reality of God's full wrath against sin. And the thing that we need to understand, as bad as things are, as bad as things can be, they are but a shadow, but a phantom of the full reality of the awful nature of God's wrath. The devastation of cancer is but a shadow 
of the pain of God's wrath against sin. The gut-wrenching agony of betrayal is but a whisper of the full-throated shout of God's judgment. Just as love and joy and hope and friendship and goodness, all those things we experience in this life are a shadow of the joy to come, the weight of glory to come for those who are in Christ. That overwhelming joy that we hear about, where we're told that He's going to wipe away every tear and there will be no more death or pain anymore. Just as love and peace we experience in Christ is a shadow of something greater to come for those who are in Christ, the pain of and brokenness of this world is a shadow of God's awful and terrible wrath to come against those who don't know Him. Which means God's justice and wrath are being are going to be more devastating than we can imagine. It will be worse than dying for a thousand years from a painful, unrelenting cancer. It will be worse than 10,000 betrayals. It will be worse than losing your whole family in a car accident every day for the rest of your life. And the reason why we must talk about this, the reason why we must not be ashamed of this, is because the problem, this is the problem that all of mankind faces unless they are in Christ. Every human being rightly deserves the worst torment because of a rebellion against a holy, righteous, and just God. We all deserve the full weight of God's wrath. Why? It's because of our sin. It's because of our sin. Look what Paul says again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You see, God's justice isn't coming because God is some cruel deity. You better listen to me or I'm going to. God's wrath is not being revealed because he is a temperamental old geezer. God's wrath is not coming because he's overreacting to some little simple mistakes. God's injustice is coming on the account of men's ungodliness and unrighteousness. His justice is coming and his wrath is being revealed because of what mankind by his free will is doing. Look at what Paul says here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath on the account of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, I think we have a handle, if you've been here long enough, on what unrighteousness is. In fact, we were talking about the opposite of that, which is righteousness, which we know is a right standing with God. We know that righteousness is required is required to have a relationship with God, and that we know that it's not our own righteousness that we're going to be made righteous. We know that, right? That, and that, that we are only made righteous by faith in Christ. Because what He did in His life, He secured for us through His perfect life the righteousness that we need, and it's given to us by faith. But those who are unrighteous not only do not have a right standing with God because they sin and love sin, they are also unrighteous because they reject faith in Christ. They are unrighteous because they find the gospel offensive and foolish. They are unrighteous because they want the gift, but not the giver of the gift. They are unrighteous because they love their sin more than they love God. And if that were not bad enough, not only are they unrighteous, but they are ungodly. Now, what does ungodly mean? And why is that different than unrighteous? Have you ever even thought about that? I know that I didn't for a long time. I mean, I would just simply take those two ideas and blend them together into one idea. 
But the truth is ungodliness and unrighteousness are related, but they are not the same thing. Unrighteousness is sinfulness or a violation of God's law or the opposite of having a right standing with God. But, but ungodliness is something else. It is literally unlike, I mean, ungodlikeness. Ungodlikeness. Or in other words, you are ungodly or unlike God in character. It's the opposite of being like God. But the heart of the word really that Paul uses here for ungodliness simply is this. It is to have no reverence or respect for God. It is to profane Him. Not only do they rebel against Him and sin against Him, they despise Him, they mock Him, they disdain Him. They have no reverence or respect for God at all. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Anybody that's encountered an online atheist knows that, right? And even worse... They're not only unrighteous and sinful and ungodly and disrespectful, but they, by their unrighteousness or their sin, they suppress the truth. And here's the key, brothers and sisters. This is why you can't be ashamed of the gospel. They know the truth. They know it. They know that God exists. They know that what they're doing is wrong. They know that they're going to be held accountable one day, even though they deny it. They know it instinctively, intuitively. They are made in the image of God. They know it. That's why, there's a, that's why everybody has a conscience. That's why they push back so hard when you confront them with the truth about their sin. Again, look at the world around us. That's why they become so shrill and hateful when you say things like homosexuality, like all sexual sin, is sin. This is why people get so violently offended and seek to have people fired and humiliated when, when you make a truth statement like a man is a man and a woman is a woman. They know the truth. They know it. But they are suppressing and denying this truth in their unrighteousness. And that's why they find the truth of God's wrath so offensive. Because they know the truth deep down. There's why There's an instinctive guilt for sin, by the way. People instinctively feel bad. That's why they seek validation continually. It's because they have a desperate desire to quell that guilt in them. And that's why they cannot, that's why we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. Because when you deny or cover over the wrath of God and and the nature of sin and ungodliness, what you're simply doing is you're allowing them. You were allowing them to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You were agreeing with the lie that they are telling themselves. Their consciences are already bearing witness against them. They know that God's wrath is real. They know that they will pay for the penalty of their sin. They just suppress that truth. And and here's the thing you need to understand about this idea. This is why learning about the actual words makes a difference. The word that he uses here that we translate as suppress It gives an idea of actively suppressing, actively holding something down. You see, when he says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, it's not that, hey, you buried it, now you can forget it. It's an ongoing, active suppression of the truth. It's, it's, It's something that you have to keep doing. You have to keep at it. It's like taking a basketball to a swimming pool and then pushing it underwater. Now, you can take a basketball and push it underwater just fine. But what happens when you stop holding it underwater and let it go? It pops right back up to the surface. It comes right back up. 
So how do you keep the ball underwater? You must actively hold it there. You must continually work at it. You must apply energy to it. It's the same idea with sin and the understanding of the wrath of God and the nature of who God is. Those who are in sin, those who are ungodly, they know the truth, but they, but they take the truth and they push it below the surface by engaging in sin, and then they have to keep doing that. And even though they're denying the truth, deep down they understand that they will be judged by God's wrath and will, it will be poured on them. But because they love their sin and hate God, they will continually to struggle and to labor and keep working to keep that truth on the surface. That explains, by the way, the insanity we see in people who are just struggling with their sin. You're like, you do realize this is consuming your life, but no, it's not. No, it's not. They just keep suppressing the truth. They actively suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that is why, why we must not be ashamed of the gospel because telling them that God has a wonderful plan for their life will not keep them from suppressing the truth. Telling them that the love of Christ that, that, that about the love of Christ without talking about the wrath of God will not cause them to deny the truth. Right. Telling them that people are basically good but occasionally make mistakes will not cause them to let the truth rise up to the surface and see the need that, of, that they have for a Savior. It is only by lovingly, and I stress lovingly, proclaiming the truth about God's wrath and His nature and their sin and their nature but they'll begin to see their need for the gospel. You see, until they actually are confronted with the truth, the truth is already instinctively known by them. But they will just continue to perpetuate the lie, perpetuate the lie. If they're not confronted, they will just perpetuate it, even if they go to church, even if they tearfully come forward and make a profession of faith at some point in their life. As we have witnessed, of eyewitnesses, the man came up here drunk as a skunk, talking about his five wives and his girlfriends, and, but he wants to kneel at the back of the church and get a little Jesus. He's suppressing the truth in his unrighteousness. But when you share with them the message of the gospel, the whole truth, the truth of God's word will strip away their defenses and it will force them to look into the mirror of God's law. And then they will be able to see clearly how hopeless and helpless they are and how desperately they need a Savior. Then they will be ready for the good news. And then, and only then, will they be ready to receive Christ. Right? They'll finally get to understand what it means for Christ to die upon the cross, that He took upon Himself the full weight of God's wrath against us, and in return offers us the righteousness we need to be reconciled to God. Church, can you now see this? Can you now see that it, it grieves me to have to talk about this? But we cannot deny the truth. We cannot deny the wrath of God or deny the nature of sin. It is not loving to do so. It is not a loving to allow people to think that God is okay with them when they're in their rebellion to Him. Actually, it's quite selfish of us. It's very selfish to be unwilling to confront people with the truth. It's selfish to let people believe that God is not going to pour out His wrath on their personal sin because what they're doing is not that bad. Notice what Paul says. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All. All. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
There's not a sin that God winks at. There's not a sin that God is okay with. There is not a sin that the Bible calls sin that God has changed his mind about in 2,000 years. Sin is still sin and God still hates it. All of it. So just, as peop- because it, so just because a popu- it's, it, sin is popular today, and just because sin is condoned and even celebrated, and just because some people who claim to be Christians in the name of being tolerant and inclusive say God's okay with it, doesn't mean that He is. He's not. Believe me, I hate even having to talk about it. His wrath is revealed against it all, which means all of mankind is in trouble unless they avail themselves of the only way to be saved. The good news of the gospel through repentance and faith. We must not be ashamed of the gospel. Otherwise, we are the very ones who are escorting those that we love and care about to the very gates of hell. And understand, I I mean, I get it. It's tough, right? We don't want to experience the feeling of being uncomfortable by confronting people in their sin. We don't want to experience rejection because somebody got their feelings hurt. So we, set, so we opt to selfishly spare ourselves of that kind of difficulty, and we just kind of skirt the subject, pretending that we're doing it for them. <laughs> Not because we don't hurt their feelings, but really we're doing it for us. Yes, the wrath of God is offensive because people love their sin, but make no mistake, they know the truth. They do. They know it. They're just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness which we're going to spend more time talking about next week as we begin to display that there's no such thing as an atheist. But hear me. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven right now upon the ungodliness and righteousness of those that we know and we love who are rejecting the truth. And this revelation is a hint of the full weight of the wrath to come. And it is unloving of us to hide the truth. It is unloving us of us to put our feelings first because we don't want to be rejected or we don't, we don't want to be seen as a Jesus freak in the family or we don't want to be called offensive. We must lovingly, and I say that again, lovingly and faithfully bear witness to the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, it's their only hope. It's the hope of the world. We cannot just say that we You know, we cannot just say that it's okay to not talk about it. We need to talk about it and live it out. The gospel is the hope of the world. And again, I'll remind you what the gospel is. It's very simple. It begins with God, the character of who he is. He is holy, righteous, and just. He is the embodiment of all that's good. He is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is wise. He's creative. He is more than we can possibly even imagine or fathom. But by His divine decree decided to create the universe and all that's in it, including all of us. You being created is an act of grace more unimaginable than you can even possibly even relate to. He created all of mankind as a crowning achievement of His creative work. And we were made for Him, a relationship with Him, to glorify Him, to worship Him, to love Him, to be loved by Him. But our sin has destroyed that relationship. Our sin that we willingly engage in has destroyed that relationship and has separated us from God. And because of that, His anger and wrath abides upon our sin and us. Which means what awaits us is the fullness of His judgment. 
and to make it worse. There's nothing we can do on our own to fix it. We cannot by our own nature. This is the, this is the lie of the good person. If I can just do enough good stuff to outweigh my bad stuff, then God's going to love me. No, you can never overcome the scales on your own. You are hopeless and helpless with nothing of your own to save yourself. But then the glorious good news, the good news of all good news, that God in his love, now his love makes sense, in his love in spite of the fact that you were unlovable, loved you even before you were born, decided to send his son into the world to do things for you that you can't do for yourself, to do all the things that you can't do. Jesus lived the perfect righteous life that you couldn't live, fulfilling the law that you can't uphold, upholding a covenant that you don't even know about. And then, if that weren't enough, he then went to the cross and bore the torment of humanity, but worse, the wrath of God the awful and terrible wrath of God, the hint of it being revealed now, the fullness of that Jesus took that cup and drank it all down for you. In spite of you. You didn't do anything to make him do it. There's nothing in you that warrants that. But he did it anyway. And then he says, you can have your sins washed away. You can have the righteousness you need to have a relationship with God. You can be made a child of God, have the Spirit of God in you, and then one day you will be reunited with Him in glory forever. If you will what? Repent and believe the gospel. Not feed a million children, not go out and make it right with every person you've ever done wrong, right? Not being religious. Repent and believe the gospel. It cannot be even easier than that. That is the grace of God. That is the gospel that we hold on to. And that's the gospel we will deny if we allow ourselves to be ashamed of the truth. And that's the glorious hope that we will deny our loved ones if we won't tell them the truth. This is the hope of the world. This is the hope of this church. This is the message that we've got to take out into the world. Now, I'm not saying you've got to go out and beat up every person and say, you dirty, rotten sinner, you need to repent right now. That's not a good conversation starter, and we all know that. But there is a loving way to approach the subject and to walk people through the scriptures and to be convinced and convicted of it. And I want you to know, remember, it is not you that's the power of God for salvation. It is this message that's the power of God for salvation. That is the hope that we have to share. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.